welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and this is Table Topics episode number 63, City of the Damned Recap. In this episode, Caleb and I sit down, and he sort of interviews me for the process that I use to create the City of the Damned Adventure, which was based off of a synergy session. And for those of you who don't know, that's where I open a pack of Magic the Gathering cards and use those cards to write an adventure. This was designed to be a three or four session game, which it turned out to be. And uh, it was designed specifically to help a new player, Dustin, learn about D&D and decide if it was for him. Now, there's been a really large gap in time between when that game was ran and this recap. That's just kind of the way it worked out. wasn't intentional. But there were some things about that game that I thought were pretty interesting about the process using the synergy and just some decisions I made. So we thought it'd be a good idea to sort of do a recap session. And that's what this is. So hopefully you guys will enjoy. I did include some links in the show notes this time for the outlines, the one that I wrote originally. And then secondly, the outline that I had at the table. So this might help give you guys an idea of how I run my games or potentially give you the ability to run that same game yourself for your table using that outline to as, as a basis that you would have to flush out. So anyway, on to the show. Here is Table Topics number 63, City of the Damned Recap. Hello and welcome to Table Topics. I'm your co-host, Michael, also known as Professor Fluff, and I have brought along with me my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you tonight, sir? I am quite well, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. So I want to start with our tagline to get it right this first time is that Professor Fluff brings a sweet and Professor Crunch brings a salty and together we are the trail mix of gaming advice. I, d- I don't know if I like being assigned the salty. Oh, uh, yeah, I kind of think you have to be the salt. Uh, Damn it. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I, 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 I would like to point out that you have, you have gone with Professor. We have gone away from that source of entertainment. Yeah, I, uh, I just kind of f- figured that uh, it made the most sense. You know, cut the drama. You and I are co-hosts. There's no above or below here. We are on equal footing. Um, and then I retain the right to arbitrarily change that at any time. I expect you. Yeah. <laughs> so for the time being, I am Professor Fluff and you are Professor Crunch. And again, together we are the trail mix of gaming advice. We have a new patron. Yay! Kind of have three. Uh, Scott and two friends, Jason and Melissa, have all gone in together. And they have backed us at our top tier adjunct professor level. Originally, this was $100 a month for a weekly game. And Caleb and I realized that probably was overcommitting ourselves. So we negotiated with them and it will be a $50 a month two-time-a-week, or two-time-a-month game, basically bi-weekly. Uh, we have been rapidly creating characters and backstory and hooks that were email and text and Twitter, and I'm actually very excited. I have a very vivid image. Hopefully, I'll do a good job painting the scene without making it too much uh, with how that game is going to start, and that's pretty much as far as I'm going to go. At that point, I was going to let things happen, but uh, I'm actually very excited to get started. Uh, that Next week, we're going to have our first game. And uh, and we'll go from there. So thank you, Scott, Jason, and Melissa. We appreciate your patronage. So tonight is going to be kind of an interesting, hopefully interesting episode, a little bit different in, in a couple different ways. 
all that's going to be cut out. <laughs> it, it will make sense at the end, but basically, this is the City of the Damned post-mortem episode. Now, at this point, those episodes were recorded, God, like eight months ago, and they've been out several months, much longer than I had anticipated the difference between those episodes and this episode being, but that's just the way it works in this hectic whirlwind life of podcasting that we're in. Uh, but originally, I was going to do an actual series of podcasts called DMing 101, where I was going to walk through that entire adventure design and then do some commentary, and that just didn't happen. But we are going to still use some of the audio that I had originally recorded to make this podcast make a little bit of sense. But before we get into City of the Damned and the recap and the kind of the, the, the way that adventure was designed and how it played out, we are going to start, as we always do now, with our gamer's lexicon. And this week, our lexicon is the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin. The MacGuffin. So, Caleb, a.k.a. Professor Crunch, what is a MacGuffin as it relates to RPGs, games, and game design? In general, a MacGuffin is a thing you chase after. That's the simplest way to say it. In it, it it's a plot device. It's a thing to drive the story. It, this is a trope of of fantasy genres. This is a trope of RPGs in general. Uh, when the PCs are given a mission to go get a thing for a person or some reason, the thing they are getting is usually less important than the journey they are traveling on. It is a motivation, it is a reason to, to leave town, leave the castle, and go on an adventure. So the MacGuffin is the thing you get that doesn't really have any impact or meaning to the story beyond going to get it. I would agree with that definition. It's made famous, at least from my understanding, by Alfred Hitchcock. Correct. Uh, who was famous for, in his movies, having the MacGuffin. And as you said, it's the thing that spurs the characters into action. Um, the reason that I wanted to bring it up for this episode is that in City of the Damned, I use a MacGuffin quite liberally throughout as a way to push the action and to give the adventure something to quest after. I would say you used several MacGuffins in that story. <laughs> it was a MacGuffin family tree. <laughs> but, you know, and I'm sure there are people out there who are better at game design or adventure design than I am. But for me, I don't have any problems using the MacGuffin. It is, it's something, it's a trope. But um, I use it. I don't have any shame about using it because I think it, it is very effective for what it does. And as you say, in, you know, in, my, in my games, my campaigns, the quest or the adventure is what we're after and whatever it is that, that starts it. So you're looking for your mother's killer. You're looking for the magic item. You're looking for the scepter that controls dragons. Whatever it is, that's what starts you out on your adventure and it sort of loosely holds things together so that at the end of the campaign you have that thing, then I'm say I'll go for it. I have, I have no problem whatsoever using a MacGuffin in my games. I think it's a fine uh, tool and resource, and I would encourage others not to be afraid of the MacGuffin. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think if you look at any TV show, book, movie, regardless of what genre that story falls into, the MacGuffin can be deciphered and pulled out of whatever plot you're looking at. Sometimes it's a tangible object. Sometimes it's a, a mission or a concept. I mean, let's go back to Supernatural, because you and I both like Supernatural so much. 
those seasons are dictated by MacGuffins, and sometimes multiple MacGuffins. I mean, you've got chasing down the cult way, way, way back, uh, chasing down the yellow-eyed demon, chasing down uh, the angel tomes, the demon tomes, <laughs> finding Lucifer, finding Metatron. Ev anything that is just a you-have-to-get-from-point-A-to-point-B reason can be defined as a MacGuffin. Yeah, I think for most of us, like we, we tend to think of it as a tangible object. It's the thing that you are questing for. Again, the magic sword that is the only thing that can defeat the demon lord. It is the scepter that controls dragons. It is the book of spells that will give you access to uh, the wizard's tower. Whatever the case may be, but it you know, but in adventure design, at least for D and D campaigns, it can also be an ideal. It can be a person. It can be an event. Uh, you know, again, the, the 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 death of a loved one that sets you on your quest to find vengeance. In some in some cases, I could argue that vengeance is the MacGuffin in that in that regard. Is sure. that you know a lot of times that happens in backstory, and but you use it to push the action forward. And again, it kind of loosely holds things together. Yeah, pretty short. I don't know. There's a lot else to, to cover on it, but uh, the MacGuffin and use it, enjoy it. Uh, uh, you know, don't be afraid of it. Yeah, it's not cheap. I mean, some people well, say it's a little cheap. <laughs> I mean, if if you it, if you exploit it to the point of your players are in a tavern and you're like, oh guys, you have to go get the unobtainium, you know, something stupid like that. It, it, you can make it stupid and you can make it exciting, just like any trope, any cliche. You can do it in a fresh way. And sure, you can abuse it, you can make it kind of silly. It, it depends on your game, it depends on your players. As long as you're creative with it, and as long as it's not just being assigned a mission, as long as you're driving story from it, as long as you're deriving excitement and enjoyment at the table, it doesn't matter how simple or silly it is, it's the plot and it's fun. Absolutely. If you're having fun... You're doing it right, as we say exactly. at the end of every one of these episodes. And if the MacGuffin is what gets your adventure started and everyone's having fun, it doesn't matter. That's, you know, it, yeah. it is what it is. Um, you can make it as, as melodramatic as you need to. It's still the thing that's pushing the story forward, gets, gets people on their quest. And that's really, it, it is what it is and it doesn't need to be anymore. So we're going to move on. Uh, again, that was a, Pretty short lexicon. I don't again. I don't know what else we can really say about it other than repeating ourselves. So we will stop that. So the, I'm going to cut in some audio here, so you guys will be listening to Michael of the past, which technically you are anyways, because when this loads, it's already been recorded. But this is like further Michael past. Uh, as I'm going to walk through the cards that I use to create the uh, City of the Dam adventure, I did a synergy session, and um, so there's going to be about ten minutes, maybe less, of audio, and it's just me going through the cards and the what you're going to hear is what I originally thought I was going to do with the cards, not necessarily what I actually did with them. A couple of them changed a little bit and that's what we're going to get into on the other side of the audio. So a uh, short break, me, and then come back to us. All right. So the first card I come across is plummet and I'm not going to go through like exactly what the text says or what the picture is, but um, because that is on the website, but just sort of like my thought was, and my first thought with the plummet is that something has crashed. I don't know yet if that's going to be a, a citadel, that like a flying city. Maybe it was just an airship. It could be a meteorite, uh, maybe even a dragon. But something has crashed to the earth, 
and that's going to play a role in this campaign and this adventure in some way. The second card I came across was Master of Diversion. And um, simply enough, I think there's going to be a diversion. My, my plot is going to have a, a fork. One way is going to be just a diversion to uh, slow the PCs down. And uh, very likely, I want there to be a way for them to avoid it. And if they avoid it, then they are, there's some sort of advantage they get. And if they fall for it and they go too far down the diversion path, that that will allow the big bad guy to uh, get further along in their plans so that when eventually they do meet them, it will be more difficult. So the next card I have is Shock. And uh, my thought here is that there's going to be some sort of trap that uh, is in, there's going to be at least one or two probable dungeon environments in this game because I wanted to have a mix of social exploration and um, dungeon environments that kind of hit all three of the pillars of the D&D game. So I'm thinking there's going to be a trap or some sort of puzzle inside one of these dungeon environments that involves not just one shock, but sort of a, a cumulative growing shock that they're going to have to endure and that that will um, either get them past something or it's just like a rite of passage. I'm going to come back to this a little bit later uh, when there's another card that connected really well. So my next card was Elvish Mystic, and uh, the first thing I thought here is that this guy would be a guide to them, that they're going to have to get somewhere through um, some sort of dangerous environment, and that uh, the Elvish Mystic will be their guide that will take them through to the other side. My next card was a Lava Axe, and... Um, this, I thought, this should be some sort of treasure. Maybe this is something that they find uh, that they can use against the big bad guy when they get there. Or maybe this is what the, the big bad guy, or even maybe his lieutenant, uses as a weapon. And then that way, once they've defeated the lieutenant, they can have it against the big bad uh, as an advantage. Eventually, I come back around that I actually think I want to make this treasure. And I want to combine it with that shock card that rather than being a shock, I think I'm going to bury a, a magical axe um, in like a pool of lava and the PCs are going to have to dig through the lava to find it. And there's going to be some sort of obviously, you know, damage and pain associated with that. And if they can endure that long enough, then their reward will be this magical axe. We are starting at level one. In my games, none of the characters are going to start with a magical item. So having a like a, even a plus one flame axe will be a very big deal. So uh, my next card was Duress. And simply, I think this means that one of the NPCs somewhere is under duress, and they are going to act against the PCs because of it. Don't know who yet, but I'm actually leaning towards the Elvish Mystic. I think he needs to be actually a bad guy now. I think that would be better. Uh, that went really well with my next card, which was, which was a Goblin Shortcutter, uh, which again kind of goes along with that theme of someone that can get somewhere that the PCs want to go. So those three cards together, I kind of came up with, what if the Elvish Mystic is the obvious choice to lead them through somewhere? But he's a bad guy. He's under duress, so he's actually going to uh, kind of go against the PCs. While this goblin shortcutter, who seems like a bad dude, is actually the guy who is most helpful. And I thought this might actually be that diversion that came up earlier, that the goblin shortcutter can get them to the place they need to go faster, but they're more likely to follow the elvish mystic because of some you know preconceptions about goblins being bad guys and elves being good guys. Um, and then more than likely... Even if they decide to go with the goblin instead, maybe they use some skill check, social roles, whatever, or they just guess and say, yeah, we're going to go with the goblin, then the elvish mystic will still attack them later or some way trying to slow them down. So my next card was a scroll thief. And uh, all I thought here is that uh, something got stolen and probably it was a scroll. Uh, and that would be maybe the, the person that the PCs start after that gets them involved in this adventure is that they're following this thief tracking him down or her down trying to get back what was stolen. 
So the next thing that came up was Mark of the Vampire. And so I started thinking that maybe what the, what the thief took has some sort of necromantic power and that it starts affecting people. It either is a spell that... Originally, I thought I was thinking about because it was a scroll that had a spell on it that would turn someone into a vampire-like creature. But uh, I actually came up with a little bit later that it's just something that radiates necromatic energy. And one of the effects is that some people around it become vampire-like creatures. Now, they're not, act- not actually vampires. They don't have any supernatural abilities, but they have this overwhelming urge to, to drink blood, kind of similar to like a zombie, that they can't control and they have to drink blood in, in their mind to stay alive. So they become sort of unthinking savage creatures, but they're not actually evil. And I like that idea to see how do the PCs deal with, uh, you know, these NPCs that are technically innocent. They're, they're cursed. They're, you know, they're under some sort of spell or influence that makes them dangerous. But you don't necessarily want to kill them because they could easily be cured or potentially easily be cured um, and come out of it. So the next card I have is Celestial Flare. And I'll be honest, I still don't know how I'm going to use this card. Uh, I had a couple thoughts that maybe there's some sort of, some sort of divine component to uh, the cure that they're going to need eventually for that um, necro item. But this one may just not come up. We'll see. So the next card I had was Tenacious Dead. And uh, basically now we got zombies. So that already kind of fits with the necromantic power that I, I have this, what I'm calling the MacGuffin. That's the, um, oh, geez, what's that guy's name? Uh, the director, Alfred Hitchcock, is famous for, uh, it's the thing that starts the movie that really has, it it's, doesn't matter what it is. All it does is get the movie started or get the story started. So whatever this necromantic thing is that that thief stole, not only does it make some people turn into vampire-like creatures, it also uh, curses them with being a zombie. So now on top of, of attacking innocent people that uh, they could possibly cure, if they do attack them and they die, then they then come back as zombies. So you're sort of getting double whammied for attacking people that you shouldn't. I doubt the players will pick up on the morality of that, but uh, I think it's interesting. So that's kind of where we're going now. So the next card I have is a Stonehorn Chanter. And again, this is another one I kind of struggled with. What I think I'll eventually end up doing is uh, there's, there's going to be a dungeon environment that they're going to have to go to probably where that lava axe will be hidden and that maybe uh, within there there's some uh, there's some iconography of a race of rhino men or possibly maybe like even like a statue that's just sort of a rhino uh, with ivory tusk and that that will be part of the cure whether it be an item or just uh, a uh, ingredient in what needs to be used to make this cure. Uh, my next card is Howl of the Night Pack. And then I I related this back to that Elvish mystic, that that's going to be the attack that happens. So he's going to lead them deep into the forest the wrong way. He's going to just get them farther and farther away from where they need to go. And eventually he will attack them or he will coordinate an attack with a large pack of wolves, probably dire wolves. If they start to grow suspicious, the PCs, I mean, he might just run into the woods one night and abandon them. And then, you know, the next day they're attacked by the, the wolves. We are going to be starting with level one characters, so dire wolves may be too tough. But this is going to be one of the big battles. This is going to be what I hope to be a big climatic battle, so I do want it to be pretty dangerous. And then the last true card I had, my rare, was indestructibility, uh, which from a value standpoint sucks because this card is basically worthless. But for the, my game terms, um, it gives me my MacGuffin. This is what the big bad guy, who I still don't know who that is yet, that's what they want is they want to be indestructible. They want to be invulnerable and mortal. There is something, possibly still this necro item that the thief stole, 
that will grant this ability, or they think they will. Uh, so I'm thinking now that whatever crashed is possibly this Necro thing was inside of it, either at the time, and then the thief went into the crashed ship or Citadel and got it, or the ship crashed and inside of there was information about where this Necro thing is. I'm still working out those details, but whatever it is, it leads to this thing, this MacGuffin that uh, causes you to be invulnerable, and that's what the bad guy's after. Uh, my last two cards, I had a Swamp. So that makes sense that probably one of these temples will be in a swamp that wasn't a swamp before. And maybe that's where that stone horn chanter comes in that in the middle of a swamp is an old abandoned temple that uh, sort of dungeon-like maybe is now taken over by some swampy creatures, uh, some yonti snake people or goblins or troglodytes are always good choices. And then my last card, a token, was a sapperling. And that just made me think that whatever the cure is for this necro device for the people that become vampire or zombie-like, uh, there's just multiple ingredients that they'll have to go into the woods and get, and one of them will be some sort of mold or fungus or spore. Uh, or I may put some sort of, like, yellow mold or spore creature in the, one of the dungeon environments. So so there you go. There's my synergy cards. That's my first kind of run-through after um, my, my initial thoughts, excuse me, my initial thoughts then com combined with some of my other ones. Um, I think I got a good basis for an adventure. I've already got a couple scenes that I, in my head that I think are going to work out. I know I'm going to have some puzzles and traps in a dungeon environment. My goal for this is to have an, a, a game that lasts four to six sessions. And for me, those are between two and three hours each. Um, you know, So probably about the size of a module that you buy uh, off the shelf is kind of what I'm going for. And we're back. Okay, so... Um... I, I think it's safe to say that you really did stay pretty true to the ideas you came up with during your Synergy session. I listened to that audio after I had listened to all of uh, the campaign actual plays. So I was kind of comparing one reality to the other. But I, I think it's safe to say that you, you stuck pretty true to the first ideas you came up with. I'm going to guess that some of the ideas that shifted a little bit probably shifted based on character input and player input during their uh, character generation sessions. Yes, that is correct, and that's one of the things I did want to mention is that I had some general ideas on what things were going to, what were they were going to be and how I was going to drive the action, but it was during character creation, and with Evan's character, Blaine, specifically. Not Blaine, Belial. Belial, that's right. You cannot keep names straight for the love of your life. It has been like eight months since we played that game, and he played Blaine, Zane, and Belial. During the game, man. Yeah, I'm pretty bad at that. <laughs> I'm going to buy you note cards. Actually, I have a ton of note cards. I write notes on them, and then I lose them, so it doesn't really help me any. <laughs> I'm going to invent... No, I'm not going to invent anything. Next time we play a game... We're just gonna gonna get the uh, hello my name is stickers, put character names on them and stick them on everyone's forehead. Oh, we do have a catacon coming, which this will be out after a yeah. catacon, but it's two weeks, two weeks, or actually less than that now to a catacon. Less than two weeks from now, not according to when our listeners are listening to this audio. Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. Trust us. But but yes, specifically, Evan's character Belial the Wizard, uh, had his background. He created the concept of a wizard's ball, and that helped solidify a couple other things that was going on in the story. Originally, the MacGuffin was going to be a cursed item that actually made people 
turn into bad things. And I actually changed it and made it a ball that was good and was actually repressing these uh, already cursed people and allowing them to live their lives without uh, the fear of this curse manifesting itself. So when the ball was taken away, that is what caused the city to erupt in chaos. So the ball became the MacGuffin. The quest was to return that ball back. And then I had some mini MacGuffins where they had the celestial flare that was like the stopgap to keep the city from dissolving itself before they had time to get the ball, which was, it was actually one of the things that the celestial flare was one of the last things I came up with. Because even in the audio you hear, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with this card. It, it was just sort of a, hmm, and then it just sort of kind of hit me sort of at the last minute. Uh, so I wasn't able to put it into that, into that audio. Right. Um, so just real quick, let's do a recap, because it's probably been a while since everyone listened to uh, the actual plays. Uh, the, the short and long of this adventure is that the, the characters come into a small town, kind of in the middle of the swamp. Uh, they're new to this area. They were just exploring, stumbled across it although it was really kind of the drive of the wizard seeking these other magical items. They got accused of a crime, uh, of stealing this uh, magical artifact. They, of course, didn't do it, uh, but they were locked up in jail. Uh, While they were locked up, the town became overwhelmed with monsters and zombies and lycanthropes and vampires. They meet a wizened old goblin who actually helps them, tells them the truth, which is... Uh, everyone in town is affected by these curses that turns them into these monsters, and the item in question helped repress that curse. The goblin asks them to go find and retrieve this artifact. So there's the MacGuffin. They are sent off on their journey. Through a course of adventures, they end up in the thick of a swamp in a little bit of a dungeon crawl. They find a supplementary or secondary magic item, which the goblin can use to create a temporary piece, but it's not permanent. So they have to continue their quest second leg to find the actual item. They go to a larger city. Uh, They end up on a a merchant airship or skyship uh, with the thief that they have tracked down. Uh, There's there's some pirate combat. They continue hunting the thief. Uh, They eventually find her, and they eventually get the item back. They bring it back to town, and everybody is happy. Yay! Yay! So... First and foremost, this is going to be not really an off-the-wall question, but how did you enjoy this process? Because I know you were approaching this process a little bit differently. You wanted it to base everything off of the synergy. You wanted to make this a smaller campaign arc, just a few adventures, a few sessions, which is very different than what you normally do. And from listening to the games, I think a lot of things that happened were not your normal type of game sessions. So all in all, how did you feel when this story arc ended? Did you feel satisfied? Uh, Did you enjoy the process? Did you feel things were disappointed? Did you wish things had gone differently? Completely agree with you. This, This is not the typical Michael game. Having said that, though, I actually think it turned out very well. I was I agree. Okay. very pleased with the overall process. Um, I thought it was a proof of concept that synergy can work, mm-hmm. that I took a pack of cards and just used the cards. I created a game that is, I think, again, humility aside, I think it is much greater than the initial concept. Like the, the whole, the gestalt, the whole became more than the pieces. And it, I thought it made a very good uh, adventure. I wanted it to run about four sessions. It ran four sessions, uh, which 
more luck than anything, but it worked out that way. The, the probably the only issue that I had the frustration is that the player issues where we had two games where two players didn't come, weren't able to make it. I mean, it wasn't their fault, just the way the world works. And normally we would have just canceled, but there was all these other factors that we don't need to get into because we've already touched on multiple times that that really wasn't an option. So we kind of had to push through. Uh, so that was the only thing is that I think we left, we missed out on some good role playing opportunities because two characters weren't there. Uh, and then we actually finished the game without Evan and Rob stepped in and played Belial for the last session. So there were some inconsistencies in that, but it was, it was smaller in scope than I, my campaigns. I try to try to make them improv heavy where the characters can go off in these random directions and I just keep trying to build in front of them and, and you can get these very incoherent stories. This was like a short story, you know, it had a beginning, had a middle, had an end, it all kind of made sense together. I mean, if you didn't question anything a little too much and like, again, like we were talking before, nitpicky, if you just got into it, it all made sense. Everybody was happy. And then of course, in the typical Michael fashion though, I still had to leave it open. You don't know why the woman needed the ball. You don't know what she was trying to do with the ball, but you were able to get the ball back to town. And so I could say this adventure is over, but there's still the potential if we ever wanted to revisit then they might be able to figure out what they were actually doing and what the larger scope was. Yeah, I, I definitely found myself, as I was listening, expecting a couple of your typical twists in your style, especially when it came to the thief and how, uh, <clears throat> how the players found her at the end. There, there, there were, I think, a lot of good ways that you could have kept that going had you continued the story. Honestly, I, I predicted you, um, you pitching her as... Uh, a good guy, heroically taking the the item to save whatever, to complete her quest of whatever she was actually doing. So it would have been more of a moral dilemma, well, whose quest is more important, which is really the greater good kind of thing, and can we meet both, can we do one and then the other? That's what I was expecting to happen. And I was expecting you to end on that kind of cliffhanger, not just, okay, we're back in the town and everyone's happy. Again, that was kind of a real world thing is that we knew this was the last night of this game mm -hmm. and it was getting late into the evening. So when they said they wanted to run in and just because I wanted the Mandacore fight to be the big the big battle. Like I was set up. I had, you know, had it planned out. I thought it was going to be a really cool battle with this monster. And um, and they were like, no, we're just going to run and take it and leave. And, you know, I could have been uh railroad EGM and been like the door shut behind you or you know or something and forced them to fight but mm -hmm. i kind of felt like one because we were running out of time uh and two that's just what they wanted to do and why not reward them for that so you never really did they never actually even talked to the woman they don't know what her story was which wasn't intentional i i had planned on them to talk to her and you're actually right she was in and at her heart a good person which i tried to set up with the situation where the baby on the airship. Yep, that's what gave it away. Right, that she put herself there knowing that the ball would allow the babies to be born. If she was evil, she wouldn't have done that. So yeah, that, I hope it was, was somewhat subtle. I don't. I didn't think it was too obvious, but I also wanted the characters to pick up on it, which I don't actually think they did very well. It, it, it was definitely subtle. Um, I, I, I kind of I'm debating whether I would have picked that up as a player, because when you're in the middle of a game what you pick up on and what you pay attention to is always drastically different than when you are listening to it as, as a third party, as an audience member. So as an audience member, I picked up on that immediately. And, and I, I knew that was 
the the giveaway there. I I'd like to think that I would have realized that as a player, but I I don't know if I would have been so involved with uh, the Sky Pirate fight that you were kicking off at that point that I might have glossed over it. Of course, if that was important to the plot and we had glossed over it, that would have been a great thing to bring up in kind of a, a flashback or a recap in a later session. Right. I, th- I would like to point out that uh, on our last table topic, we, we talked about one-shots, stories that had you know beginning, middle, and end, and they're supposed to be completed in one night uh, of gaming. I think this uh, overall campaign is, is a good example of that in-between type of gaming session, in-between a one-shot and a very long-running campaign. I mean, it's kind of like a module that you would get from a book. It's short, but it's meant to be handled over a couple different sessions. You definitely had a plot that progressed beginning, middle, and end, and there were plenty of methods of keeping the players in the lines of that plot, but it didn't feel overbearing and forced. So I I think these campaigns, beyond demonstrating the process of using a synergy and translating it into a game, uh, these games also give you a really solid example of how to strike that balance of not just a one-shot, but not a story that would take years to finish. This is a really good sweet spot just to demonstrate to a new player, a new GM, hey guys, here's how you make a story that's not going to kill you to run it forever, but it's not going to be done in one night. So I think you did a really good job with that. I don't think it was your intention, but after the fact, that, that that's what has come to light. So I, I think that was really, really important. Yeah, like I said, I was really happy with it. And again, the, the reason we did this was to let Dustin try out D&D. He had shown some interest. Uh, at the time, Nico had left the group. We were looking for uh, one more player to bring in. And he showed some interest, but he wasn't ready to commit. So they're like, well, I'll just put together something short and simple, give him a couple sessions to play. So that, that's one of the reasons why the pacing was different than my normal games is I wanted to have an RP session in each game. I wanted to have some combat in each game. I wanted to have some funny moments in each game because I wanted to give him a pretty good idea of all the different aspects, uh, which I don't, in my normal games, I don't always do because the characters drive the action. If they don't decide to fight anybody, then there are no fights. Sometimes I'll force one on just because I feel like it's kind of getting boring. But for the most part, the characters decide what we do in my long, my ongoing games. In this one, I set up situations that I knew would be fights so that there would be combat. And I do want to mention, I've always wanted to do a dream sequence in D&D. And I finally got to do that with the, the, the opening sequence. I mm-hmm. think it could have gone a little better, but I actually was very... I would give it like an 8 out of 10 for accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, 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 I don't think I predicted the end results, but I kind of saw some of the puzzle pieces uh, as I was listening. Um, I think that's a really fun way to start an adventure. Um, you're kind of letting the the PCs be super heroic and be super awesome and and introducing kind of not the silliness of the game world, but a different dynamic of the game world. Um, and you definitely kind of highlighted the bard character at that point, telling how he was spinning the story and introducing his style into it. I've done a couple similar things. Uh, it wasn't a bard telling the story about 
the PCs, it was a bard telling a a story of a um of a giant historic battle. And I had the players, I gave them pre-gen characters of the super heroic iconic heroes of history. And they fought this massive, massive battle and then fade to black. It was a bard telling the story in a tavern to the actual PCs who were in the tavern. So a little bit different twist. I think it might have been more interesting if you kind of would have gotten who was playing the bard, not Travis. Uh, Nick was playing the bard. Nick was. It might have been more interesting if you would have gotten Nick in on it ahead of time and had him almost write elements of that story if he felt comfortable doing that as a player. Hmm. Because then you would have essentially been able to have his flair as a character because it was his bard telling that story. So if this would have been maybe a longer-running game or if you would have had a little bit more development with the bard, you could have had that bard essentially telling the story through his own words and vernacular and style. It might have been more exciting to him. It might have been a little bit more telling to the players then. They would have gotten maybe a hint of what was going on, so they would have had a little bit more fun with it. Because obviously they thought it was a real combat. <laughs> yeah, which, again... So Evan is one of the people who would say, you know, last night was a great session, but I really wish we'd have fought something. Right. Like he, he wanted to have a combat every game, at least one. And so I started this game out with a combat and he was a character that tried to avoid the fight. Like I could have smacked him across the table at that moment. He's like, we don't have any reason to fight these people. I, in my head, I was just like, oh God, you're killing me here. Of course, he was accurately role-playing his character though. I mean, you got to give him credit for that. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm not going to argue that, but just like that battle, there was there was many reasons why it was in there, one of which was to try to make him specifically happy, and then he like tries to scuttle it, and it's like, ah, oh, what am I going to do with you? Moving on. Moving on. So we talked about how you, um, you, you did everything off of the synergy here. We listened to that audio earlier. A lot of the questions that I came up with as I was listening to all of these actual plays about why you used a certain plot element or a certain device is really answered by the fact that everything was based off the synergy cards. So I don't really feel the need to go into why you chose to have this guy do this or have this element pop up. It was simply because of the method of creating this campaign session. And I think uh, everything did flow together pretty well. Obviously some things felt not off or forced, but some elements, just because of the type of cards you had, didn't always fit exactly right. And you even mentioned, as long as you didn't put the plot under a microscope, everything worked together really well. <laughs> uh, but all plots are like that. Yes. I, I think uh, the way you pulled those elements together kept it entertaining, and it made a lot of sense. If, if I had been playing at, uh, at the game with you, I think I would have been right there in the moment, and I would have been right there chasing down the various MacGuffins. One of the things I was right off the bat curious about was the dungeon that you built that they went to first for the Celestial Flare. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that audio was missing from the actual play, uh, but in general, this was kind of a standard dungeon crawl. It was a, a sunken temple in the swamp, and they were exploring it, and uh, there was a bunch of yawn tea in there, I think, to fight. Yep. Uh, eventually, they got to the end 
once they fought the boss of the dungeon, so to speak, uh, there were the two tunnels, one with the celestial flare in it and one with the lava. Now, from the audio of you going over the cards, I'm guessing that the lava was the axe, correct? Correct. So had they pursued that leg of the tunnel, one of them would have gotten this magical fire axe just as a bonus, right? Yes, it would have been a magical axe. I really... I didn't even have it statted out yet. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but I knew more than likely it would just be a magical axe. It's like a flame axe or something along those lines. That that was one of the uh, the areas that was. And again, Evan still was still new to D and D. Dustin was brand new to D and D. Nick and Travis weren't there that night. They had gotten some healing potions just moments earlier, and it, it never occurred to them to go down the hallway and then drink the potion, and then come back. And that that would have given them enough hit points to make the trip both ways. I didn't want to tell them that, uh, but that was what my thought was, is what they would do. Uh, they came up with another solution, which was just as good, using the mage hand and you know only going partway down the hallway, which is great. I'm glad the players solved a problem differently than I did. But in my mind, that was the point of the healing potion, was to give them the avenue to get to both sides. Well, that was definitely a question I had, you know, what it's it felt like they were missing something, so I didn't know if the, if you had put that puzzle piece in there and they just missed it. You know, the secret door with the switch that's labeled "Turn Off Electricity." There was a secret door that went around behind, but they did not find it. Uh, we I even uh, like at one point I think it was in the audio. I kind of hinted. I was like, "Well, there's no other doors that you found." And Evan's like, "Oh, we want to go look again," and they still didn't find it. So yeah, there was a, a door that would have led to and turned off the trap, so they could have got it easier. But they also had healing potions that would have allowed them. Uh, because it was a known quantity. It was one, then two, then three. So they both had enough hit points to have gotten to one end. The question was, could they have gotten back? But they had healing potions that would have re- given them an, a full set of hit points to, to make the trip back. So so this is an interesting question here. You came up with two different ways to overcome this trap. You had a secret door there that would have been a switch if they would have rolled high enough to find it. Correct. You also gave them... A, a bag full of healing potions, thinking that, well, if they just power through and take all the damage, heal themselves on the way back. Correct. Honestly, if I was playing that and I hadn't found that switch, I would have done that. I would have said, fuck, I'll just take the damage, down a potion, and come back. You gave me the potion, that's what it's there for. But I, I'm a very experienced player. Asterix, very, only about 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know enough that when I see a bag of potions, it's because I'm supposed to take damage. Um, so it, first off, it's interesting that you figured out two different ways to overcome an obstacle, but your players totally unpredictably came with a third. Correct. I think it's an awesome moment as a GM. Um, it's it's a first off, it's cool to see your players doing something innovative and creative, and. I don't think every person running a game would say this, but I think it's cool if my players kind of outsmart me. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things that, partly because I'm lazy, but <laughs> one of my design elements that I put into my games is that I don't necessarily put puzzles in front of characters based off of what they are good at. 
Like I don't go over the character sheets and go, okay, well, I have a third level bard. They have this spell. So I will create a situation where that spell will save the day. A lot of the times I don't know what the players can do. I don't know what spells they have taken. I don't know what abilities they've chosen. And I'm fine with that because I want to present the opportunity that makes sense as, as the game designer this is what makes sense to me is the situation and I want the players to solve it. I don't want there to be a situation where they have to solve it the way that I expected them to. Now I I gave them some avenues, uh, but I was very happy that they did something completely different because I never, I didn't consider they could use mage hand. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I was aware that Evan had that spell, but I didn't really think about it. And I know that there's people who do the opposite and they, they specifically go, okay, I want to have a scene where the guy who's good at talking will be, you know, will come out here. I want to have a scene where the cleric can turn undead. I want to have a scene where the ranger has archery that, you know, they need to make the shot and give each pro each person their moment to shine. And that's completely fine. I think it's a good method. It's not the one that I usually do in my games. I agree. From playing your games and witnessing your games, that's not how you normally plan things out. I think it's a good strategy, though. And I think as a new GM, that's a tool you can use. Um, I think as a GM, if you are stuck for creativity, if you have a little bit of writer's block, break it down and think, okay, well, what's something cool I can do to let my cleric do something neat and kind of draw some story elements out of there? Oh, how does that bleed into the rogue? Or how can I involve the rogue in that? Or what can I do something different for the rogue but still fit it into the story? Now, another... Still talking about this part of the dungeon. This is a topic that I think we're going to probably end up getting some debate about here. But if, if your players are not figuring out how to overcome an obstacle... How far do you go in giving them hints? There's no real right answer to this. I think, because let's say they had not come up with the idea to use Mage Hand. They had not come up with the idea to use the potions and just power through it. They'd already gone through the dungeon. You'd given them one hint, well, not in the door you found, hinting that there was another secret door. So let's assume they picked up on that, went through the entire dungeon again, and kept making rolls but they kept flubbing the roll. They kept missing it by one or two. So do you as a GM give in and give them a random bonus so they they make that perception or search check? Do you give them a hint and say, well, guys, you, know, you have healing potions, so any damage you would take, you can get back without worrying about it. Or do you do something, you just let them flounder. You just say, sorry, guys, hands off. It's up to you. If you can't figure it out, too bad. <laughs> uh my opinion on this is has changed uh, in the you know almost thirty years now that I have DM'd, and I have definitely softened. Uh, and you know, harkening back to when the angry DM was on recently about mysteries, you know, you have to decide if failure is an option. Mm-hmm. In this particular game, it was not because there was a very specific reason why we were playing this game, and I, I would not have been happy or satisfied if they just failed right and they had to go back to the city and then goblins like oh well and everyone died and that would be the end of it so eventually i would have given them something and and again this is now eight months later probably the healing potions because in my mind that was the solution uh i probably would have said don't forget you guys did find a couple healing potions you know you probably could get there uh nick and travis weren't there that night travis was playing a cleric i could have stepped in as an npc and said hey i'll I'll cast healing on you guys or 
you know, or maybe make up a spell that he has, like energy resistance or something, I would have eventually given them him. But I would have wanted them, I would have waited until they were done. Like they said, okay, I, we don't know what to do because I don't want to step in so early and steal their thunder. Because there is, there is a sense of joy as a player I get when I solve a, a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And if it takes me a little while, that makes it even better. If it takes too long, then I just get frustrated and I, it, it stops being fun. And I don't know that there's a, a specific time point, like three minutes is too much, two minutes is good, but I would have read the table. And at the point where they're just like throwing their hands up, like, look, look, Michael, we don't know what to do. I would have stepped in and given them some sort of clue or direction or something. Yeah. I think you, you hit it on the head there. The, the, the correct answer is it depends on your players and keeping everything fun. You know, you don't want to take away that joy of discovery, but you don't want them to get to the point of being frustrated and fed up and upset. And that's, there is no magic number after five minutes or after three failed attempts. It's based on your experience, their experience, and paying attention to everyone at the table. I mean, we, this is an old, old topic we talked about, uh, but we talked about how, um, as a GM, you you really shouldn't have an NPC that you control in the party and use that as your excuse to take control of the adventure. Same thing applies here. Don't step in and give them the answer before they've had the time to try to figure it out and experiment because you're taking away their excitement and you're taking away from yourself that moment of, oh, they figured that out in that way? Oh, that's cool. Because you learn from that, and that's a fun moment for you, too. I mean, if Absolutely. you sit there and build an awesome dungeon and say, okay, they have to find this key to get through this, they have to find this door to get through that, you've taken away your sense of joy and surprise to an extent. I mean, I don't want to be an overall ultimate, ultimate statement there because uh, there's always exceptions. But if I write out a dungeon, I know everything that's going to happen. There's no surprise. There's no excitement for me there. If I let my players come up with something really creative and cool, I get some excitement back. So so you definitely want to leave that wiggle room there. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, the lava axe. I, I think it was important to note there that you didn't make that crucial to the campaign. It was there as a bonus. I, and you even said this during your synergy. It was something that if they made the effort to get it, it would have made the rest of the campaigns and fights easier but if they didn't get it it wouldn't kill the campaign right that's a good example of something not being a MacGuffin. (laughs) it's not crucial yeah i think there was there was a version of this where the last creature they fought was going to be an ice-based monster Ah. Um, and i once they didn't get the axe i changed it i knew there would be a big battle boss battle at the end, but I really hadn't set on the monster uh, at the beginning of the game. So mm-hmm. um, I think that was in my head. I was like, okay, well, if they get the axe, I'll make it an ice monster. That way it does most, you know, double damage, whatever. And it's a reward for them getting it. And since they didn't get it, it just was something else. Gotcha. Continuing past the dungeon, as, uh, as the players continued their adventure, there were definitely a couple elements in these games of what I would define as a random encounter. And I know we have talked in the past that you typically try to avoid a purely random encounter. You always try to include 
some sort of plot elements or story elements there. So in this setting, in this example, did you lean more towards the quote-unquote random encounter simply because of your overall theme, that this was a D&D experiment, both for you and for the players? Was that kind of your feeling there? Well, in this case, they truly weren't random because they were planned. The one that comes to yeah. mind is the frog and bullywug encounter at the mm -hmm. beginning of session three. I wanted there to be a fight. That was the schedule. This will be the fight for this session because I wasn't sure exactly what else would happen. And uh, I just thought it would be honestly kind of a funny little fight. But again, that was I didn't realize two players weren't going to show up, and I wasn't didn't realize I was going to almost kill them right away, uh, which kind of made that combat a lot deadlier than it was supposed to have been. But that would so it was there for the sake of making sure that there was a combat in that game. And then the other thing was, and I think I even hinted during the actual play, I kind of anticipated they would uh, capture one of the bullywugs and then you know get it to give them information and help them get through the swamp faster they didn't do that so again it didn't necessarily hurt them but it it took up more time because that was another element of this game is that i set a, a very hard clock they were always against the clock trying to they had to keep pushing forward it didn't give them a lot of time to waste and that would have been something that i would have cut a day off of their trip in the swamp which at the end of the campaign could have been significant uh, if it had come right down to the wire. So that was the thought, is it would be a fun battle, be kind of silly. Uh, you know, bullywugs and giant frogs are always great, um, and, and I think, encounters in the swamp. I mean, it's pretty much like a staple for me. If you're in a swamp, there's a really good chance you're going to fight bullywugs and, uh, and giant frogs. Just like if you're in a forest, you're probably going to get attacked by a pack of wolves at some point. <laughs> so it was just it was a thing, fun thing for me, a fun thing for them, uh, and then the opportunity, again, they didn't have to take the prisoner, but if they had, it would have made the adventure easier. Yeah, that was one of the things that stood out to me after they survived that encounter narrowly and just slaughtered everybody. You actually said to them, oh, I'm kind of surprised you didn't take someone prisoner because it would have made your life so much easier. I kind of don't know how I feel about you saying that. <laughs> um, it's, I, I agree were, with you. I, it's one of those things that with an experienced group, which with experienced group probably would have, uh, but I was yeah. dealing with two brand new players, and there was part mm -hmm. of me that was like the teaching DM. I wanted them to know that was an option. You don't always have to kill everything. Probably right. still shouldn't have said it in the game. I probably should have waited till later, but it was one of those things that in the moment I was just like, did you guys know that capturing him was an option type of a thing? But I agree well, with you. I probably shouldn't have said it. But see, that's also one of those moments where you could have had a player make, say, a wisdom check or an intelligence check, kind of relying on that check to serve as a hint, as kind of a cheat to give character info over player knowledge. And especially with um, Belial, you had that orb, and... While the orb was not necessarily the, the source of knowledge and hints, you certainly left it open as a GM to exploit that if you needed to. So if you really felt in the heat of the moment that you wanted to remind them that slaughter isn't always the correct answer, that could have been a reason too. Like maybe you could have said, okay, Belial, make a quick arcana check. Oh, well, will you notice that the orb pops an image into your head of the bullywogs navigating the swamp quickly and efficiently. So they're, they're obviously natural inhabitants of the swamp. They know their way around. The orb's probably telling you that they might be a valuable resource. Right. 
of course, that one's stabbing you in the face. So it's up to you. Well, and again, and that could be a you know a failure on my part as as a role player. Like I very easily could have had the last blow. Like go, please, please, no, I will help you, you know, or something. And in the game, they'd been like, oh, okay. And we just sort of, and I think part of it was because the battle was going so poorly, and I started cheating like a mug to keep them from dying because they were they were going to die if I didn't cheat yeah. for them at that point. And I think it, it, in my head, it became a mechanical thing. I was just trying to keep them from dying that it, it kind of stopped being a role play moment, which is a good lesson to learn is that that shouldn't have happened. So yeah, the, definitely there was an opportunity that I could have done that in the game some way with the ball, with the role playing, with a wisdom check. I decided to do it out of the game, probably the least good of the options. I don't think it was terrible. No, 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 no. It, yeah, it probably would have been better if it happened in the game. I do want to take one step back just to clarify something, because part of the audio that was lost, there was there was something that happened that later on we referenced, but you don't know what we're talking about. There was a moment in the dungeon before we pick up uh, in episode two where the, they found a library and the ball on its own volition basically jumped out of Evan's pack and rolled down the hallway and disappeared. And when they tracked it down, it had gone into the library and there was a book laid out on the table and it was on top of it. And it was sucking basically the magical spells out of that book. Um, and that's how it was basically kind of growing its power. It had basically blanked the, the spell book and absorbed all those spells. And uh, and I later I referred to the ball as being full like a tick. That's kind of what I meant that it had absorbed uh... those, those spells. And it was also a way to keep them from using that to bypass the game because they kept wanting to be like well, why isn't the ball just taking us where we need to go obviously i didn't want it to just take them there so that was another sort of a cheap gm trick to make sure that they couldn't just rely on the ball the whole time gotcha see so much of so much of what we have to do when we're running a game is just constantly in flux like that and we're always make, having to face that decision of how much do I give them? How much do I hold back? How much do I challenge them to discover? Do, do I make use of a game mechanic? Do I make use of a role-playing mechanic? Where, where do we draw that line between players and characters? How far over the proverbial GM screen do I step when it comes to helping them? How much do I hide from them? And there's never, ever going to be a, a right answer. That that just constantly in flux between uh, across the table there. I, I think this is a really good example throughout all of these actual plays of ways that you did it right in handing out information and helping them. Ways that you could have done it differently throughout the course of the adventure. So honestly, this these campaigns or this actual play for this campaign ended up being really, really useful for not only building the campaign, but how to run the campaign, how to deal with different elements. One of the things, and you mentioned this a little while ago, was that for a big chunk of the game, you were down players. So it's always difficult a, a, a difficult question of what you guys do at the table when you are missing players. You certainly did one of the options in which you sort of NPC'd the guys during combat, but you also just kind of left them out of big chunks. You gave them an excuse to not be there. And, again, there's not really a right answer there. You know, there, there were a couple moments where, as I was listening, I said, well, wait a minute. If, if these other 
PCs are there in an NPC fashion, Michael could have had them make a charisma check or could have had them make a persuasion check instead. But then I said to myself, well, would that just be too cheap? Would that be taking away an interesting moment from the actual players that are there at the table? It's a very fine line. Like, there were a couple moments where uh, the wizard was trying to bluff his way through a situation that would have been perfect for the bard to handle. And had everyone at the table, obviously the bard would have stepped up and said, no, you stupid wizard, let me handle this. This is my job. Though I do think that was one of my favorite parts of the whole adventure was when they were trying to get into her room, and they that, that oh, whole absolutely. sequence was cracking me up. Oh, sure, and that's, that's a perfect example of why you don't want to overrun a, a live player's ability to improv and do something totally goofy because it makes for those really hilarious moments. That's a moment that your players are going to say, hey, remember that one time when my wizard tried to pretend he was drunk and bluff his way into that girl's room? That's a, a little story to tell, and that's a funny thing that's, that's going to be memorable for you and your players. So you don't want to take that away from them. But going back to what we said earlier, if they were in a situation where they had to make a social role-playing check and they were getting really frustrated because they weren't figuring it out and it stopped being fun, that's the time when you as the GM in this scenario might say, oh, well, the bard steps up and, and does his bardy magic and everything's fine. Right. At that point, it's a viable solution. But again, it's a very fine line. There's no right answer. There's no right timing moments. You just have to feel it out. I would agree. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, everything really flowed really well for the whole campaign. Um, there's nothing... Unlike your other campaigns, there are no giant overall questions I want to ask you. You didn't have any of those super confusing moments that you typically do where you leave those giant open-ended questions and it just leaves us all gasping for air in the sea of pure mystery. <laughs> Did you have something bigger in store for the elf in the woods? Was he just a momentary distraction? Uh, he was a momentary distraction. Uh, going back to the synergy session that I recorded earlier, mm -hmm. there was the, the diversion. One of the cards was about a diversion, and that's where that was. And in my head, the elf uh, was actually in love with the thief and they were somehow romantically connected and he tried to lead them away because he didn't want her to die. Uh, and that's why I think his last plea was to save her or something along those lines because he was just trying to keep them from hurting his love. And that's why he was in front of them. He knew that's what they were after. So, you know, again, there's parts of the story that I don't know for sure what would have happened if they had explored them. I would have probably made something up and role play at the table, improv. I mean, uh, but in my head, that's what that was about. There was a, there was a love connection between him and her, and his diversion was to try to protect her. Gotcha. So that's one of those things that you might have brought up if the campaign had gone on longer. Oh yeah, if, like if they had actually questioned her or, or got to her motivations or this was like an ongoing thing, then if it had come back up, there would have been a, a reason. Like That's one of the things we talked about before is that I don't always have a reason at the time, but I am a person that I want there to be a reason if it comes up again. So like if someone would have eventually said, well, it doesn't make any sense. Why did that elf do that? You know, that was it just to distract us? 
I would have had a reason. It might have been a kind of a BS reason, but there would have been at least some sort of reason that I could have said, well, actually, they were in love and blah, 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 and it would have made sense. And that's a, a cheap way for GMs to wrap up story elements, not necessarily retconning, but retroactively filling in the blanks. In the heat of the moment, it really didn't matter because it was a giant fight that they barely survived. And you knew that the story was wrapping up. That was chapter 9 out of 10, right. and they were to the end of the night. So you didn't... Yeah, that was the last thing until they got to the end. Everything else was just story, narrative, and blah, blah, blah. You're there. Uh, going through the, the last dungeon, You know, I narrated that they were able to follow the tracks. That wasn't because we were at the end of the night. That was all planned because, again, I was just trying to resell this ball of miracles and the things that it could do, And it, uh, you know, because I just did, I didn't need another dungeon crawl. We already had one. Uh, you know, again, if this had been a campaign, like a long ongoing thing, then I probably would have drawn out a big map and had them go through it, and that would have been like a whole session of navigating it. But in, for what I was trying to do, that didn't make sense. Sure. There were a couple of things I wanted to point out just to see if you oh, had any yeah. comments or questions. Um, yeah, go ahead. So one of the things... I get these flashes of images, whether they're from movies I've seen, dreams, cards, whatever, and you know they they work their way into my game. And there were a couple of those in this one. Uh, the first being, I really wanted the characters to be in jail and be happy about it. Like that was one of the things going into the game is it doesn't necessarily fit any of the cards, but I was like, I really want them to be in a jail cell. And that be the best place to be. And that's where that scene underneath the, whatever you call that thing in the town was, when they all, when all hell started breaking loose and they were locked in the jail cell, I wanted them to be happy that they were currently in there. And I don't know that that played exactly the way I wanted it to, but it did, I did get the old crap moment. Like that was, we ended the first night with the guy just trying to ram his head through the bars and they were all like, ugh. And that was kind of all I was going for was that moment. And then the other big thing that I saw that I really wanted to do is I wanted the thief to jump off the airship without a parachute. I, I wrote in my notes, it's called, it was an ST plunge. And I just, I just, in my mind, I had that image of them being at the edge of the boat and be like, you know, the salute and then just jumping off. And everybody would be like, did she just jump off the boat? And at that point, I think the ball of miracles had shown itself powerful enough that most people had kind of figured out that's what was going to happen. But I still like that image. Uh, cause in my head, cause it was snowing, you had the snow covered forest. It was just blanket white. And you had this figure just falling down almost like the end of a movie. So I don't know. I, those, those are two very evocative scenes that don't necessarily fit with the cards. Uh, but I just like them and they work their way into the game. No, I, I def, I definitely got the sense that you were putting more of a cinematic emphasis on certain elements like those. It's, it's something that is difficult for GMs. You really want to paint these giant, huge, exciting pictures, but of course you need to narrate that and keep the players involved and interested. You don't want to just take over and tell them what's happening but you need to exercise your narrator wand at some point and say, this is what's happening. I've, I have faced that same struggle before, seeing something in my head, this awesome scene, this great moment, and trying to describe it and kind of being less impressive than it was in my head. And I think that's just based on experience. You know, I, I, you and I are both 
uh, approaching the GM table from a creative writer standpoint where we like being the narrator. We like writing out a scene. So I think in our heads, we kind of think in that narrator voice. And we say, okay, I want to have this awesome moment where the thief jumps on the edge and she's standing there against the snow falling and she salutes and you see her jump off kind of suspended momentarily in a swan dive and plunges down through the snow. You want to give that moment its, its grandeur and its weight, but in the heat of everything's at the table, sometimes it just doesn't flow as well as you want it to. It's just, it's just experience. It's literally just you need to be so confident in your skill as a narrator at, that you can just make this vibrant and real and as cool as you see it in your head. Uh, well, we've talked before. We we got into a little bit of a Reddit fight a few months ago uh, with some people about the difference between plot and story. Ugh. And I think this is a this is a situation where I would agree that someone who wants to be a writer sometimes we embellish too much. And uh, you know, I have the I have the tendency that if I if I describe what I think is a very cool and evocative scene, and I don't get the reaction from my players I expect. I assume it's because they didn't get it, and then I tell it again, or I or I will retell it slightly differently because I'm. It's like telling a joke, and then you're like, "Do you get it? Do you get it?" <laughs> like I, until I get the laugh, I assume it's their fault because they don't get the joke, not realizing that the joke's not funny. So I do have a tendency in my games to sometimes do that, where I will narrate what I think is a very cool scene, and if all the players are kind of like, "Okay, cool, it's my turn yet." I'm like, well, no, you, you, the dragon and the gold and the teeth. And, and like, I just, I keep going with it. And then, then no one says anything. And I'm just like, no, it's a big drag, big dragon teeth gold. So that's something I need to be aware of. And, and just because the thing is, is it's not a story. As much as I like to input story into my games, it is a game and the players are the active participants. And I need to set the scene and let them live within it. And if I'm painting the scene too long, they're starting to lose interest, and that's not their fault. That's mine. I need to do a better job with less words uh, and give them more opportunity. And and I've tried to do a better job. Still, my nature, as you know, is to talk, and sometimes it gets away from me. I agree, and I, I think that is a really good lesson that you have learned about yourself as a GM, and that definitely reflects your maturity an evolution of your skill. It's very difficult to hand away the reins of narration and let someone else take over what would kind of otherwise be your story. And I think you and I have both shared our experiences countless times. At the very beginning of our GM careers, we were writing stories. We wrote a plot of events from beginning to end, and we just let players play those bit roles, but we still control a lot of it. And I think a lot of GMs start out like that, and there's nothing wrong with it, but you evolve and you learn, and it makes for a better game, for the most part, when you do things a little differently. That being said, not to counteract everything we just talked about, but sometimes it's really important for the GM to verbally create the majesty and the detail of the scene that the players are walking into. 
I don't think for the average dungeon or average town you need to go into that. You don't need to spend 20 minutes describing the sunrise over the small village as the PCs are walking into it. But if the if they are walking into a really big set moment, like if they're going into I don't know, they're they're walking o- through a mountain overpass into the valley where the MacGuffin is and you have this like giant sunken castle that's overgrown with moss and trees and you are in theory preparing for them to spend a lot of time in this new area or if they are in an airship and they're crossing into an area they've never been before and they're breaking through the clouds and there's rainbows and and the sun is hitting off this castle village that's floating in the sky on clouds made of ice crystals there's some really cool moments that you don't want to gloss over. And you don't want to tell, let the players just say, okay, you see this village, what does it look like? Or it's a village in the sky. Yay, keep going. <laughs> you don't want to miss things. And I would agree with you. What, what I would say, though, is thinking of it like a video game is that's a cutscene. Yeah. And it's important for the characters to know that's a cutscene. And then, you know, you're going to listen to me talk for five or ten minutes. I'm going to set the stage. So I agree yeah. with you. I think it, it still has to be careful, uh, but it does have its place. But I think it works better if it's if it's almost like, I don't. I wouldn't say this is the cutscene, but if you do it in a way that doesn't imply that they need to interact with it, this is just set dressing, it's probably going to go over better. Yeah. The, the last two notes that I had, uh, and then we can wrap this up unless you have anything uh, major you want to talk about. Go for it. Is my absolute favorite moment was when Evan, or excuse me, when Dustin's uh, monk, Ando, jumped off of the ship and then almost fell to his death. There were so many little pieces and parts of that that happened that just worked out perfectly. Originally, when the Scott Pirates attacked, I did not think to have them tethered to the ship. Uh, and that was just a bit of an improv. I don't even remember now. Some, something happened, and I was like, oh, well, surely they would have tethered themselves to the ship. Otherwise, that would be dumb. So that was just a little thing that was created in the moment. And then I think Evan used, like, a magic missile and knocked one off, uh, which I just narrated that, you know, now they had a dangly guy. So then when he jumped and missed, it just it just was a perfect little happy little coincidence, as Bob Ross would say, a happy little accident, that created a moment that is one of my favorite moments in any recent game. And I think Dustin loved it. I thought Evan loved it at the time. It it created a situation that I could not have necessarily created that without their input and without the improv at the table, which for me is just reinforces the benefit of being more open to improvisation and then just kind of going with it. If you create something, it's there and just keep going with it. And you might be surprised by what you end up with at the end. But my biggest mistake, and it didn't really hurt too much, but same thing with the improv thing, is having two airships at the city. There was like a nanosecond where I'm like, oh, well, that'll be cool because then they'll have to decide which one to go on. And then instantly I'm like, oh, that was a terrible decision because now I've just created this sort of arbitrary choice. They don't really have any reason to pick one over the other. It just, it was a mistake. And I was just like, well, it's, it's been snowing. Cause I knew I wanted the snow scene. Like I knew at some point the thief was going to jump off the ship into the snow. So I, I created the, the fact that it's snowing early on. And it just sort of like was an improv thing. Cause eh, it's snowing. There's a couple of ships that have been waiting. The other thing is that I wanted there to be a reason why she wasn't already gone. That she, cause they were, she was so far ahead of them. I needed there to be a reason that she hadn't already caught an airship. 
So it all just sort of came together that, oh, well, because of the snow, all the ships have been delayed. I really, really wish I had just said, oh, well, it's been snowing, so the ship is delayed. The fact that I made two ships, it just added a complication that didn't need to be there. It didn't add to the game at all. And I had to do some GM uh, tap dancing just to get them on the right ship at the end anyways. Yeah, that was definitely something I noticed that added into the the delays that we all experience at the table when players are kind of agonizing over one little point and going on for a really long time debating certain thing. Every game suffers that from time to time. So, so, so yeah, you, you, you sometimes see a cool thing in your head and then you realize as, as your players are totally off-topic, tangential, spending two hours debating which boat to get on, that, oh, that wasn't as cool as you hoped it would be because it created more problems. Yep, it created unnecessary headache for no real gain. Yeah, but you learned, and now next time they're chasing a thief into a merchant town that has a skyship, there's only going to be one skyship. That's right. Or I will have two ships, but I will have three planned out. The mystery, so I know the answers, so that when they ask me, as Angry DM says, I will know what to say. And I improv the whole two-ship thing, and then I was like, I don't have a way, a way for them to figure this out. Like, I don't know yet what the answer would be, and, and it was just going to be a, spir- a death spiral into uh, Nowheresville. So, fortunately, we were able to figure it out pretty quickly, but it yeah. still was unnecessary, so... Uh, yeah, the if, other day, go ahead. I was going to say if if you had needed to be if you had needed the plot to be about the mystery between the two boats, I think it would have been easier for you to figure out a pattern and a different way for your players to solve it. But because you just thought of it as kind of a cool element, you didn't go into the details yourself. So it, it's kind of uh, and the the point there is. When you're coming up with an idea for the game, you got to ask yourself how much it matters. And then if it really matters, you have to make sure you plan enough to support the weight of how much it matters. Live by the improv sword, die by the improv sword. That's very true. Nice. But overall, I'm very happy with how it turned out. I thought, again, it's proof of concept that Synergy can work. I would like to try to do it again in the near future. Maybe do another short, like in between... Like if a campaign comes comes to an end or we need to take a break, I might try it again uh, with 5th edition, the, the actual 5th edition rules, and try it again. We'll just kind of see how it goes. Uh, the last thing is I'll mention is when I, when I do post this, I'm going to include all the cards along with my original notes, just like basically the audio or the written version of what the audio covered. I'm also going to include two outlines that I wrote. The first was the initial outline, and then the second was the outline that I actually had at the table with me. It was a little bit more fleshed out. Uh, just to give people an idea of, of basically how I prepare for my games. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's bullety pointy. It's very simplistic. There's not, I mean, there. I think if you actually read it and then listen to the game, you will be like, holy shit, he does improv a lot at the table. Because it, <laughs> cause there's not a whole lot of meat to it. And that's basically generally how I run my games. It's just, I have an outline for that night. And then if things go too far off book, I'll just improv it. And then before next game, I'll figure out how it connects. So. So any last words about Lost City of Calamot or City of the Damned? Because I kept changing the name. Well, uh, I just overall, did you have fun? I did. I had a lot of fun. Then it was a good game. That's all that matters. 
Though the the point was to show Dustin how to play, and after that, Evan and Dustin both quit. So maybe we should be asking them if they had fun. Uh, well, they are not co-hosts on this show. That's you and me. That's correct. And you had fun. That's what we are discussing. That's right. If you're having fun, it you're doing it right. And in this case, you was me, and me had fun, so I is okay. What? <laughs> That was another thing of improv. It just it, in my head it made sense, yeah. and then by the time I got out of my mouth, no. I'm returning. I'm returning this trail mix. There's almonds in it, and I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like almonds either. Almonds suck. You just improv some almonds, my friend. So we Man, are done. improv in the almonds. I think that yeah. might be the title of the episode. <laughs> it makes no sense. Yay! <laughs> or that's the title. That makes no sense. <laughs> So, no new reviews on iTunes or Stitcher this week. This has been Michael, a.k.a. Professor Fluff. And this has been Caleb, a.k.a. Professor Crunch. Thanks for attending the RPG Academy and listening to our podcast. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. This podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way please visit patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We will use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out numerous ways. One, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes or you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Also, if you clear your cookies and then visit Amazon or drive through RPG through our portal, we get a kickback from your orders, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like an RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com or you can reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google+. We are there under the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>